So our scripture reading today comes from 1 John chapter 3. We'll read verses 11 through 18 before Matt comes. For this is the message you heard from the beginning. We should love one another. Do not be like Cain, who belonged to the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own actions were evil and his brothers were righteous. Do not be surprised, my brothers and sisters, if the world hates you. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love each other. Anyone who does not love remains in death. Who hates a brother or sister is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life residing in him. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. If anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? Dear children, let us not love with words or speech, but with actions and in truth. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks be to God. Well, good morning. Good to see you. Uh, my name's Matt. If I haven't met you yet, I would love to meet you before you leave today. We are spending um, what looks like is going to be a couple of months at this point. We're spending a couple of months talking about our purpose as a church, which maybe that seems like we will be belaboring the point, but we haven't done this in several years, so we're really going to dig our heels in um, this year. As Austin mentioned last week, our purpose statement as a church begins like this. As a missional community or as a church, as a group of followers of Jesus, following the teachings of Jesus, we seek to participate in the restorative work of God. And we do that in four primary ways, by engaging in our surrounding culture, caring about each other's journey, encountering the sacred, and discovering wholeness. We are going to spend time over the next couple of months looking at each of those points in some detail, but today I want to begin by considering the community piece of our purpose. And we're actually going to be talking about the community piece of our purpose for a couple of weeks. But what we have described in that statement as caring about each other's journey, caring about each other's journey. So to begin that process, I want to invite us to think first about the church as family, the church as family. So let's look at the gospel text appointed for today in the lectionary, the third Sunday of Epiphany. Mark chapter 1, we'll begin reading in verse 14. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat mending the nets. And immediately he called them. And they left their father, Zebedee, in the boat 
with the hired servants and followed him. A common feature that we find near the beginning of the various gospel accounts are these calling stories where Jesus begins to assemble this close-knit group, what we now refer to as the 12 disciples. We're going to read another one of these calling stories next week, but I want to begin the exploration of the necessity of community for the church with this story from Mark 1 as the backdrop. It's a story that many are probably familiar enough with, the calling of these fishermen by the Sea of Galilee, Simon and Andrew, and then later James and John. In fact, we might be a bit too familiar with it. If we read this through 21st century Western eyes, which how can we not, it's possible that this story seems like nothing more than your classic coming-of-age tale. This is just sort of the first century version of the film Boyhood or Lady Bird or Dare I Age Myself and Say Almost Famous. These Jewish boys, fishermen on the Sea of Galilee, Following the prescribed plan for their lives in this small town, they're going to follow in the footsteps of their father and do what is expected of them until that inevitable journey of self-discovery sweeps them away, carries them to the big city out of the suffocating monotony of small-town life. They are going to finally find themselves, and this itinerant teacher is going to lead the way. I mean, that is a blockbuster storyline. But is it an accurate reading of this story? We, we are so familiar with the coming-of-age motif and, speaking for myself, so unfamiliar with the first-century world of familial loyalty that we might read this story and not even think twice. And yeah, that's a pretty normal story. Kids grow up. Eventually, they spread their wings to leave the nest. James and John were not going to be another failure-to-launch statistic. It's critical, though, of course, that we slow down and recognize just how radical those simple statements from verses 19 and 20 really are, or really would have been for Mark's audience. Joseph Hellerman, who teaches at Biola, wrote a little book called When the Church Was a Family. I'll, I'll probably be referring to it a bit over the next few weeks, but he argues that culturally this would have been unthinkable. To abandon one's father in the middle of the workday, on the job no less, would have likely been understood as the ultimate betrayal of blood family in a dissent group society like that of the first century Jewish world. I mean, this was a society where loyalty to blood family mattered more than almost anything else. Loyalty to siblings superseded even loyalty in marriage a lot of times. That was a relationship that was largely contractual in nature. That bloodline, though, that gave shape to my understanding of my identity and my place and purpose in this world. And my purpose in this world is wrapped up in having a child, especially a son, so that that bloodline might continue. We obviously live in a much different world. 
Loyalty in a marriage relationship typically supersedes loyalty to siblings. We, we also live in a much different world when it comes to our individualism. We'll, we'll consider this in more detail in coming weeks, but our mantra is typically, well, I am self-sufficient. I don't need anybody else, and I don't owe anybody anything. I follow my heart and do only what I want whenever I want it. I think it's possible that Jesus presents a fundamentally countercultural call to discipleship, a call to discipleship that is at its core an invitation into a family. And that call into a family is a radical alternative both to the bloodline descent group family model of the first century world. It's also a radical alternative to our hyper-individualistic culture today. The community gathered around Jesus Christ is a family. Let's look briefly at another story in Mark's gospel where this becomes even more direct and perhaps as a result even more troubling. Mark chapter 3, we see Jesus has returned from Capernaum and is starting to get a lot of attention. Amazed crowds are beginning to gather around him. Unfortunately, he's also garnered the attention of some of the religious leaders, like the scribes, who think he's demon-possessed. But it's not just the religious leaders, even those closest to him. His family thinks he is starting to lose his mind. Our, our brother, or for Mary, my, my son, he has lost his way. We need to get him out of here. Maybe all of this attention is going to his head. I don't know, but he needs our help. Let's get him out, isolate him, get him on the path to recovery. Well, we read this in verse 31. And his mother and his brothers came, and standing outside, they sent to him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. Jesus here radically redefines or reimagines family not by blood relations, but in the context of our adoption as God's children. Remember what we read a few weeks ago from the beginning of John's gospel, John chapter 1, to those who received Jesus and believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, children of God, adopted into this surrogate family. Again, consider how radical this is in view of the first century collectivist framework centered on familial relations. Think of James and John leaving their father to follow this itinerant teacher. It's a much bigger deal than it likely seems to us. And yet, even in that context where there was such an extreme focus on family relations, Still, Jesus insists, the community gathered around him is exactly that, a family. 
So what does this mean? What do we do with this? I mean, are we to sever all family ties as an expression of devotion to a local church? Just so you know, no. That sounds much more like a cult than anything else. Is, is this proposing or condoning the abandonment of spouse or children in favor of the community? Of, of course not. That would contradict other teachings from Jesus. This is not saying family relations mean nothing. However, the image or metaphor Jesus consistently uses to describe the community gathered around him is a family. We have to take that seriously. That, that image can't mean nothing. In fact, N.T. Wright, commenting on passages like these where Jesus makes these radical claims about the family status of those who follow him, he said, the only explanation... For Jesus' astonishing command is that he envisaged loyalty to himself and his kingdom movement as creating an alternative family. The church is a family, and that is a gift. The church is a family, and that is a gift. Now, some hear that as the true, and receive it as the true gift that it is. I think of those who maybe have limited or no connection to blood family for a variety of reasons. Maybe that's due to death or strained relations or something along those lines. Those without strong familial ties may receive this news as the incredible gift that it is. We, we find Jesus later in Mark's gospel at, at actually pointing to the fact that the church's family, the community gathered around him as family, that that is first and foremost a gift. If we jump ahead to Mark chapter 10, so we're taking a really quick tour through Mark's gospel. Jesus has, in Mark chapter 10, Jesus has a well-known encounter with a man who has become known as the rich young man. What a, what a title, the rich young man. So this Wealthy young man approaches Jesus and asks, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus says, well, you know. You know the commands. Don't murder. Don't commit adultery. Don't steal. Don't bear false witness. Don't defraud others. And also, make sure to honor your father and your mother. The young man responds, great. Check, 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 and check. I have done all of that, and I've done it since I was a boy. So, so am I good? Jesus lovingly goes on, well, just one more thing. It's a small thing, but sell all you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Follow me. And then we're told this made that man really sad because he had a lot of wealth. Jesus then goes on to say, it's very difficult for those with great wealth to enter this kingdom of mine. Easier even for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. But with God, even the impossible becomes possible. So that is all setting us up for where I want to take our uh, attention now. If we jump down to verse 28 of that chapter, we find Peter, maybe in typical Peter fashion, saying to Jesus... Look, what that guy was unable to do, he left very sad. What he was unable to do, we've done that. Think back to the beginning of Mark's gospel where we started today with Simon and Andrew and Peter and uh, James 
leaving their nets, leaving even their father behind. We did that. Then we see Jesus respond to Peter. Mark chapter 10, verse 29. Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands. It's all good until this little phrase, with persecutions and in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. So we see on one hand here in Mark chapter 10, Jesus acknowledges again that following him, this call into discipleship is a costly call. And it's costly for different people in different ways to some degree. Some may actually suffer severed family relations because of faith in Jesus. While probably not all that common in our context, it remains a distinct reality for brothers and sisters in various parts of the world where Christian faith is anathema. Jesus says, the community gathered around me is a family, and that is a gift that brings into our lives very real and tangible benefits even today. Jesus promises that while you may very well sacrifice greatly for your allegiance to me, he says here in Mark 10, you will receive a hundredfold. One way of seeing this is in relation to family. Your family has grown exponentially in your adoption by God. In the age to come, yes, there is eternal life, but there are even incredible gifts of God's kingdom given even now. And one of those gifts we might understand as the family we have been blessed to be a part of. The church is a family, and that family is a gift. And it's a promise, a call, not only to those with broken family ties, but anybody who receives life in Christ Anybody who surrenders to Jesus as Lord, who has made God as Father, is immediately grafted into this global, historic family. We've talked about this in the past, but St. Cyprian, a third century bishop from the North African city of Carthage, famously said, he who does not have the church as his mother mother does not have God as his father. Now, I I get that that may, on the surface, sound like an institutional ploy for power. Like, you have to do what the church as an institution says, or else we have the authority to cut off or revoke your connection to the Father. If that's how we understand this, I, I reject that sentiment. But I think there's another way of reading it. In fact, I like how Joseph Hellerman, in that book, When the Church Was a Family, how he tweaked it. He said, he who does not have God's children as his brothers and sisters does not have God for his father. The point being that adoption into the family of God is exactly that. It is not only a relational connection to the father, but it is adoption into a family. 
We don't have the option of accepting Jesus as our personal Lord and Savior and pursuing life in him in isolation. Life in Jesus Christ is not intelligible in a way that is disconnected from the family of God. By virtue of our adoption as God's children, we become a part of a family. Whether we like it or not. And we might not like it. Or it might take us years of transformation, personal transformation, to see this beautiful reality as the gift that it is. But Jesus seems to envision the Christian community, a group of disciples gathered around him as more than mere acquaintances, as more than casual friends, but having become a part of a new family with all of its obligations, with all of the blessings that it brings into our lives. We'll continue to think about this in the weeks to come. Perhaps, though, before we begin to wrap this up, there is a needed caveat in this conversation because I do think this is where individual churches must be careful to avoid some really unhealthy patterns, and maybe that cult-like approach to organizational leadership where to go against a leader or to go against an institution is to cut oneself off from the rest of the group. When we think about the church as family, that is not at all what we are talking about. So when we think about the church as family, um, one thing we need to consider, are we talking specifically about solid rock? And that's a complicated question, because the answer, I think, is yes and no. So so we see family language used a lot um, organizationally. We, We see it from the business world to the world of professional athletics. Um, And that language can be used to try to force loyalty to an institution. um, And that's not what we're talking about. Unfortunately, that has been done in churches. But if our, so I want us to think about this small local context. If our idea of the church as family, of solid rock as family, if that leads to us setting up other congregations as competitors, like a mob family going against another mob family, we have it wrong. We've missed the mark. The institution is not the family. The, The people sitting around you right now, that is the family. And we are as much brothers and sisters with other followers of Jesus worshiping around our city right now. We are as much brothers and sisters with other believers worshiping around the world today. It is not about us and nobody else. So that's the no part of the answer to the question. However, this small local context is a visible and accessible place for us to begin trying to live that calling out. So we are a family, not to the exclusion of other followers of Jesus, But this is a place where we are learning how to view the church as a whole, as family. The church is a family, and that is a gift. 
as such, we want to learn how to care for each other. We want to learn how to be concerned when others suffer or struggle with doubt or struggle with sin. We want to challenge one another. We protect one another. Again, a caveat, we're not talking about protecting leaders or, or silencing victims from account, uh, uh, protecting leaders or institutions from accountability. We're thinking about each individual in the family. We want to seek the well-being, what is good for each individual. We're, we're going to continue this conversation next week, probably over the next two weeks, but as we begin to bring this to a close today, I want to offer first a word of challenge and then also an encouragement. So first, the word of challenge. How might things change? Big picture, but also in some of the specifics in our interactions with one another, how might things change if we could actually begin to see one another as brothers and sisters? When, when I was growing up in um, Pentecostal church culture in the 80s and 90s, it was very common, at least in the context I was raised in as a kid, to refer to other adults in the congregation as brother or sister so-and-so. And while it seems probably like a very antiquated practice now, I think there's something to that, always keeping that relational status front of mind. We are brothers and sisters. Even take a moment, think about, maybe even look around. The folks sitting around you, brothers and sisters, we have entered this new surrogate family with all of its obligations, with all of the blessings that brings into our lives. How might our community, how might our lives change if we actually live into that reality? And then how can we practically begin, how can I practically begin to live into that reality? living as brothers and sisters together, living as a new family. Secondly, a word of encouragement. This is a gift. The gift of adoption, not only that change in relational connection with the Father, but also a welcome into a family. And perhaps that is a longing you are experiencing, maybe because of broken relationships with family or friends, I, I would encourage you, there is welcome, not just by God as Father, but welcome into this big and, to be honest, messy family. We'll, we'll talk about the mess next week. But I invite you to receive that. Receive it as the gift that it is. I'd invite you to stand as we celebrate around the table of our Lord, as we gather with one another around this table, an expression of our unity, despite all of the differences that this group, it's a small group, but still the differences represented in this room are many. And for at least a moment, in this moment, we set aside those differences. We acknowledge our unity in Jesus Christ fact that we are brothers and sisters. I'll say a prayer for us and then invite you to the table 
We'll make two lines down these center aisles. When you get to the front, somebody will be here to speak over you the words, the body of Christ broken for you, the blood of Christ shed for you. Take and receive these gifts of God for the people of God. Again, if you are in need of prayer, please find somebody at the front or the back uh, to pray for you. Let me, let me say a prayer for us, and then I'll invite you to the table. Lord, we just take a, a moment to quiet our hearts and our minds. To make room for your Holy Spirit to speak to us, to challenge us, to encourage us. Gracious Father, we are made aware again this morning and are so grateful for our adoption, for the welcome that you extend to us, the inclusion and the embrace we find as members of your family. Help us to continue to discover the beauty of that gift. Despite the mess, and there is plenty, despite the difficulty, help us to see the beauty. And help us to continue to learn how to live that reality out. How to follow the example of your son, Jesus Christ, who laid his life down help us in this incredibly difficult endeavor. Help us to become a faithful expression of your family. And we pray, let your continual mercy, O oh Lord, cleanse and defend your church. And because it cannot continue in safety without your help, protect and govern it always by your goodness through Jesus Christ our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. Would you join us at the table of our Lord today?